Hey guys, Jack here. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a fantastic guest today, well-known poker vlogger Matt Vaughn, here to discuss a World Series of Poker main event hand, as well as you know some stuff about his life and his career as a poker vlogger. Only other announcement today is to remember to send us your hands. There's a link in the show notes to a form you can use to send us hands. We haven't done any listener hands in a while. I'm planning an episode soon where we're going to cover a bunch of listener hands, and so if you want uh, to submit some stuff to be considered, uh, please send it there. And if you sent us hands recently that haven't been reviewed, it's coming up soon. All right, guys, thanks again for tuning in, and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Just Hands podcast. Uh, I'm here with vlogger extraordinaire, Matt Vaughn. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's funny, I feel like the word extraordinaire is used a lot when combined with vlogger. I'm not really sure why that is, but a lot of people say that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's just something about today's sort of podcast vlogging zeitgeist. It's just what comes to mind automatically. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to question it because it, it feels very good for, uh, for my ego. But yeah, it's, it's, it's great. I like it. <laughs> so Matt and I had the pleasure of meeting. Matt stayed in the house I rented during the WCP this summer, what was dubbed the Just Hands House. I don't know if you were even aware of that title. Uh, yeah, yeah. I sort of, I sort of got the gist of it on the way in. Spent a few days there. It was pretty nice and actually not that far away from where I ended up staying later on. So it was good to get a lay of the land and to meet you in person. It's always, it's always nice to be able to uh, have met someone in person before doing uh, one of these like online audio only type things. Yeah, for sure. And I actually just knew you as a solve for why alumni and thoughtful poker player. And so I invited Matt to come on the podcast and then later found out that he's a really popular poker vlogger. So that worked out well for me. I think we are here planning to debrief some from World Series action? Is that the plan? Yeah, some debriefing. Uh, some some I've already debriefed, so we'll, we can start with one I have not debriefed. I'm not quite sure how long it'll take to talk about, but uh, this is from the main event, so fun times there. I heard you uh, did not so bad, and was it your first main event? It was my first main event. I actually, I was all cash until earlier this year, and I took the plunge into the tournament world and have been really enjoying it. I've had some pretty good results so far, and the World Series of Poker was kind of a a wash for me. I sort of broke even throughout, which is not a terrible result. But yeah, I did cash the main, which was nice. It's definitely better than not cashing, although it was barely more than a min cash. But I'll take it. Yeah, the main is the main is a special one where I feel like most people kind of don't mind min caching whereas i feel like in a lot of other uh smaller and less prestigious events min cash is sort of like the oh you know i cash but it was for peanuts kind of mentality but that's awesome man congrats thank you i think if i min cash you know again next year i won't be you won't be sad but i would be more disappointed considering it's not my first time playing or my first time caching plus it feels just like such an amazing opportunity one, just seeing the competition, you know, in my own table draws and then watching the coverage, you know, even down to the last few players, there were some really soft spots at the table. It's just pretty epic. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. I, I played my first main event last year, actually, and 
part of this is down to just being a weaker player myself at the time, but I felt I had much tougher draws last year than this year. Um, so this year I was very excited day one, day two, even a lot of day three to kind of get to capitalize on some of my weaker table draws, but ended up coming a little bit short of a cash. But definitely a great experience. I feel like anytime you make it to day three in the main, it's probably, you get something to take away from it, uh, even if it's just down to kind of like better understanding of yourself and how you kind of play over the course of, you know, three, 10, 12 plus hour days and kind of like making adjustments to various table draws and dynamics. Because there's one thing about the main event, it's probably one of the most diverse fields that you're going to come across, especially at this buy-in level. Yeah, it's a, it's a very different experience than any other WCP event or tournament I've played. It's a little hard to describe. It's just something yeah. that has to be experienced. And yeah, yeah I, think, I think the hype that goes into it too is just kind of indescribable. Like I was trying to explain to a couple of friends who take poker pretty seriously but don't really play a lot of tournaments and don't really want to and it's kind of hard to pin down exactly why the main event is so special but i think a lot of it is just so much of the field is kind of like checking off a bucket list item um, and the excitement around it just never really goes away yeah i think that's absolutely the case it's just a very especially like comparing day one of that tournament versus day one of any other tournament such a drastic difference people's approach the actual structure yeah i was sort of thinking about the fact even mid-tournament that when i was like in the middle of day two and i was looking at what the blinds were going to be that we were still sort of in like the mid part of day one for some of the tournaments that i played because i played kind of a, a range of events this summer and some of them were the fun kind of crazy turbo-ish 30-minute level ones where you play like 18 levels on day one and uh, just kind of looking at the tourney clock at, you know, level uh, seven or whatever in the middle of day two and realizing that it wouldn't even be dinner break in some tournaments is kind of, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, like when you're in the middle of day two and average stack is like 75 bigs. <laughs> right, uh, right. I also, I don't know what day one you played, but it was really strange having or just being in a tournament for a week. Like I played day one, a, and then busted at the beginning of day four. And so I think that was either Sunday through Saturday or Monday through Saturday. I can't remember. I think it was Sunday through Saturday. And so just like the experience of sort of getting prepared mentally Saturday night and then kind of being in tournament mode for that long was really wild. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. I mean, the days off, I think, help particularly later on in the event when you're kind of battling fatigue more. But early on, it's sort of weird to have like day off. And then I think what you probably had like either one or two days off in between day one and day two, and then also a day off in between day two and day three, right? Yeah, so three, three of those days were days off. Right. But it, and it is, it definitely is, you know, not a particularly like grueling experience to have a day off, but you do sort of have, it is weighing on you like, okay, well, you know, what the hell is going to happen? Like my table looks good, but is it actually that good? It could all be over so quickly or it could just, you know, go amazingly. 
I also came into day two with a really big stack. And so there was like a lot of excitement and just like kind of nice, just like looking into the top 15 and seeing my name up there, you know, after day one, a, yeah, that's pretty wild. I think managing expectations is really hard in the main cause you come in so deep and you know, the field's going to be kind of soft at large, but you, you got to handle your table draws as they come. And then, yeah, I, I was similar. I didn't quite bag a top 15 stack for day two or even in my flight, but I did have like 175 big blinds or something coming into day two. So it was, it was definitely like some excitement, but also trying to keep my head on straight. Right. Well, so what day or the hand you want to discuss? Perhaps yeah. day three? Uh, actually, no. Uh, okay, so cool. the, the hand I wanted to talk about uh, is from day one. So spoilers, I don't bust on this hand. And so my day one table draw was pretty typical, I guess, for what people hope to get in day one of the main. It was largely recreational. Probably a couple people that were either like semi-pros or pros. So they're, you know, grinding out some kind of income from the game, but they're not, you know, probably not high stakes pros and they're definitely not big names in poker. So was definitely happy sitting down. And this is actually, I think it's technically level two in day one. So it's blinds are 150, 300. Nobody's passed around a ton of chips just yet, but I am actually down from starting stack despite my good table. Uh, I'm sitting on 43K from 50K starting, but obviously still very deep and everyone else is quite deep as well. So under the gun and under the gun plus one both limp in in this hand and we're nine handed. And I look down at 10 nine suited in under the gun plus two. It's definitely been kind of a limpy passive-ish preflop table so far and I didn't think that I was going to get heads up all that often by raising uh, unless I go kind of gigantic and I wasn't super crazy about doing that particularly since there's no antis in play yet so I actually decided to over limp here and uh, the small blind and the big blind both come along too okay so I I like having an over limping strategy in these spots, you know, most people who are limping aren't planning on limping to fold. And so there is for sure a set of hands that benefits from getting in cheaply and potentially, you know, avoiding something like getting three bet. I don't think 10, nine suited is one of those hands. I actually think 10, nine suited in like sort of similar hands benefit a lot, you know, disproportionately from narrowing the field you know, compared to hands like pocket fives and king seven suited. And the reason for that is that 10-9 suited touches a lot of flops, which means that you're going to have a lot of instances where if you can narrow the field to two or three, you're going to have a very profitable C-bet, particularly in position, which is the most likely outcome. Whereas that ability to sort of mildly touch flops in the form of gut shot or a backdoor flush draw or you know, middle pair or something. It's just not as valuable five ways. And so I think that these middling connectors do very well to raise preflop. And so I would generally raise, but I think having a limping strategy is absolutely right. And I'm sympathetic to wanting to raise this hand or sorry, wanting to limp this hand and minimize variance and, you know, only proceed on flops where you pick up 
significant equity. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Certainly my perception at the time is that a raise was not only not going to get it heads up, but we, we would go four plus way to the flop very often, even with a raise. Now, that's probably slightly skewed from my perception and a little bit from reality. So I can definitely be on board with raising, particularly from this position. This is the one thing that made me pretty unhappy about overlimping, just with so many people behind uh, yet to act. But I did overlimp and the small blind completed and the big blind checked his option. So we go five ways to the flop, uh, 1500 in the middle, and it comes down ace, queen, six with the ace, six of diamonds. So I have a flush draw and uh, a couple backdoor things going on. It ends up checking to under the gun plus one, who was the second limper and under the gun plus one bets 700. I considered raising, but I felt that probably this player, even though he's pretty late to act in the field, likely wouldn't be, he he just wouldn't have like a lot of bluffs that would go away super easily to a raise right now. And so I just decided to call and the big blind called behind. Yeah, I like the call. Um, you're not repping a ton when you raise. You know, your most plausible value hands are a six and pocket sixes. And I think even a six, you know, has is tempted to play through a call at some frequency. And it would be it would be one thing if you could deny the equity of better flush draws. I think that's a really good reason to raise here when possible. But I think at this stage, well, there's there's two things to consider. One is that most flush draws are either going to be the nut flush draw, which just isn't folding very often, or right. a combo draw, which is never folding. And there's not that many jack X of diamonds that are possible. Jack eight exactly. And so that that's one hand that is fairly desirable to get to fold that you might be able to get to fold here. But I don't think that's you know, the sort of denial aspect of raising is, I think, unlikely to be particularly impactful. And so I like proceeding through a flat, taking advantage of your position, and you're going to have a lot of turn cards that give you more of a value range and give you opportunities to go ahead and raise your hand as a semi-bluff on the turn. Cool. All right. Yeah. So I did decide to just call again. It was 700 into 1500 and uh, the big blind was the only other caller. So he had check called. Uh, So we're going three ways to the turn. There is about 3,600 in the pot and the turn is the eight of spades, which is backdoor flush draw now on board as well as the front door flush draw. And of course, as far as nine non diamond cards go, this is kind of the one that gives us the most equity i guess an offsuit a true offsuit date would have been even better <laughs> but uh it, it ends up checking to me and uh i honestly got a little bit confused at this point in the hand because even though i felt like it was one of the better cards for me from an equity perspective i felt like the way the action went down on the flop it was pretty unlikely that i was going to actually get a bet through both players very often but especially the big blind, given that he check overcalled the flop. And then in game, I was just sort of unsure about whether going for two bets would be a good move. Like if I bet 
turn and then both of them call, I felt like I wasn't necessarily going to be able to bet the river very easily. And there's sort of a lot of rivers that I wouldn't really know kind of where people are at in terms of like I block some of the draws, but there's still so many draws available, that kind of thing. So I kind of just decided to uh, check behind because I knew that I had so much equity and there was kind of not that there was nothing wrong with it, but you know, it would be a relatively small mistake to check behind. Whereas I felt like betting could potentially be a sort of big mistake. Mm-hmm. So I would probably bet here. I think, I think this is an, a time where you can take advantage of people's propensity to play fairly passively in the main event. And you're, you're almost always going to have the equity to call raise. Like if someone jams over the top of your bet, then, you know, they have it and it's not that big of a deal. But yeah, I think the main reason I want to bet is to build the pot for the times that we hit on the river. Just having, we have so, so many ways to make our hand, some of them fairly disguised. Like I think we get paid a lot of the times that we make a straight. There's a lot of benefit to having the pot be larger in that situation. And I also think that we, we're generally going to have a profitable river bluffing opportunity. Describe these players, if you, if you don't mind. We haven't really talked about <laughs> who these sure. guys are. Yeah, so these specific guys are fairly recreational. They are not players that I would consider to be pros or particularly skilled. I mean, they're, you know, they're not total new players. They're experienced, but they're, they're kind of straightforward, I would say. It is pretty early in the day, so I don't want to kind of like overcolor what I know about them. But yeah, it's sort of, sort of typical, fairly straightforward, mostly value-oriented players, that kind of, that kind of description. Yeah, I would just probably be planning to barrel off here. <laughs> I think the big exploit that's possible on day one is just like bluffing too much. People are too reluctant to call and they're too protective of their stack, particularly this set of players who right. you know maybe has less of a reason to be protective of their stacks. And I also think part of that manifests itself in you're not going to get check raise bluffed here almost ever and so your opponents one i think can fold aces on the river you can represent the backdoor draw as well your opponent shouldn't have that many strong hands like your opponent is you know in from the big blind and so they could have a lot of draws that are ahead of you and will potentially fold now potentially call and fold if they break and yeah, I think you can get some aces to fold, which, you know, in cash, I don't try and get aces to fold on double flush drop boards. Um, <laughs> sure. In the main event, I think you're able to do that. Plus, you, you're going to hit at a fairly high frequency. Like you're going to make your hand like 30% of the time or so. And so even if you give up on bricks and only represent like the backdoor flush draw as a bluff, I still think you benefit just from betting now. And I, I do think you get it through sometimes on this street. Yeah, that's fair. I'm just like, now I'm in my head. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I played any street, right? <laughs> it's it's interesting that I, I the only thing that you said that I kind of felt a little bit iffy about was you kind of 
I felt like you both said that we're likely to get paid when we hit, but also likely to get bluffs through on the river, which seems somewhat contradictory to me because the, the disguised cards that I can hit won't complete draws. Well, except for specifically mine, pretty much. Or, or if it's like a backdoor draw, or if I hit the front door flush draw at the same time as hitting the straight, it's harder to get paid. So, like, it sounds like your primary reason to bet, though, is because you do think that you can get it through either on this street or the next street, like, pretty often. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I think we, I think we can exploit... You're right. I think I underestimated what I expect our full equity to be on the river. Mm-hmm. particularly against big blinds range when I was saying it wouldn't be hard to get paid. I think I'm shutting down more often against on the gun one when he check calls, but I also think that we can exploit some sort of inflexibility of ranges with sizing. This is the type of hand that I'm normally going to be bluffing for a smaller sizing on the river, you know, just because so many of the hands that I want to get to fold are, draws that beat us that bricked or like queen x of diamonds big blind should have a lot of nut flush draws that miss hands like king 10 king jack are possible particularly if those hands like picked up backdoor equity and so i think you can bet smaller and win the pot enough for that sizing and if your opponent does have a top of the range type hand and we Particularly if we make a straight, we can just size way up and expect to get called at some frequency. And so I just think betting now improves all of our options on the river. Yeah, I agree with that. Pretty much the only reason that I did end up checking was because I I wasn't really sure what, you know, under the gun plus one was doing. I actually I found his turn check confusing. Like it that kind of surprised me in the hand. So I sort of was like, I don't really know if I'm getting two bets through here that often. I don't know what this guy's doing, so I just take my equity. But what you're saying now definitely makes sense. And I think it's actually more likely that uh, Under the Gun Plus One does have some sort of ace or possibly even a queen sometimes, but that he just doesn't feel it's strong enough to bet a second time, given that he got two calls uh, on the flop. Yeah, I don't think betting is vastly better because I do think that this player is going to be a little bit ASX heavy. Uh, when you say this player, do you mean under the gun plus one or the big line? Under the gun plus one. Okay, yeah. And so if we think it's unlikely that he's going to fold uh, when it breaks out, then I think there is definitely a case for more of a case for checking back. Also, if we think that we can disguise diamonds then I think there's more of a case for checking back. But if we if we think that range is ASX heavy... We could just start bombing it now. Yeah, I was going to say, I would consider <laughs> just sizing like way up. I think the other nice thing about sizing way up is that we sometimes get big blind to fold better diamonds. Right. And that's pretty useful. Bottom yeah, line is, this hand has a lot of flexibility. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to fuck up like a huge combo draw in position. And so... All your options, it's going to be fairly nitpicky in terms of trying to determine which of these various like hugely plus EV things that we could do <laughs> will be the most plus EV thing that we could do 
Right. As long as I don't open fold in position <laughs> when it's checked to me, it's it's not horrendous. I gotcha. Um, even like a even if you bet two big blinds, like <laughs> right. I think that's definitely like increasing your EV. Yeah. So it's it's also worth noting that we're still like ridiculously deep behind, or I guess reminding us of the fact that we're ridiculously, you know, have so many bigs behind. So like we could pot it, get called by both players and still pot it with chips behind. So I kind of do prefer just going big because I think we're actually getting called once pretty often on the turn, but then getting to just win the river pretty often. So we're kind of like forcing them to give us more chips now, which is sort of crazy, but you know, as you said, it is the main. So, yeah. And I, I think generally like a recreational player is going to be more focused on their hand and how they feel and less focused on like trying to deduce how many value combos you have relative to bluff combos. Right. Um, Agreed. And most rivers will be like at least kind of scary. You know, even like a six is scary to an ace here. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah, I think that that definitely describes these guys they're i mean they're not i'm not gonna say it doesn't matter what i rep it's not quite to that point but certainly they're not counting combos so yeah i i I agree with kind of like the overall assessment that it can't be that horrible to check just because of how strong this hand is but it's also almost certainly better to bet bet but i did end up checking and so the river is there's still 3600 in the pot with heaps behind and uh it's a queen of hearts so it's an offsuit queen that pairs uh the second card from the flop and the big blind now leads for 3200 into 3600 and under the gun plus two folds uh under the gun plus one folds excuse me so my thinking at the time was pretty much that big blind is it shouldn't really have an ace at this point with this sizing. He's sort of representing a queen or better. And I wasn't even convinced that he could have better than just a queen here. Like he, he'd have to have just check call the flop with sixes or check over call the flop with eights to have better, I think. And so if he's betting this size, it's pretty much a queen or it's some kind of just total air misdraw. And I also, at the time, I kind of felt like there's a pretty good chance that the big blind would just check fold flop with a lot of, particularly the weaker queen X that he can get to the flop with, which is all of them. So even though it's kind of annoying that he can get to the flop with every single queen, except for maybe like ace queen, I felt like a lot of them don't make it to the turn. But I'm kind of curious what you think about that. In terms of how many queens he could have? Yeah, so it was a limped pot pre, so like theoretically he sees the flop with every queen in the deck. But I felt like given he's out of position check over calling the flop, that we can remove at least some of them. Yeah, I actually think that our hand functions really well as a bluff here, since the most likely queens are queen x of diamonds, which he'll have basically all of, you know, other than... Maybe maybe he re- opens king-queen or queen-jack of diamonds. But I tend to think that rec players are more likely than they should be to just knuckle back, you know, from the big blind. 
Now, that being said, he, I think there's a ton of hands that he could end up with here. I think he could have all King Jack, King 10, Jack 10, maybe some backdoor hearts, like maybe some, maybe like six decks of hearts or something. There's just a lot of potential bluffs. And I think that the only likely value hands are Queen X of Diamonds, which are almost all but assured to get here. But we block two of those, which is really nice. And I don't think you're getting three bet bluffed here. So I would definitely raise. I just think that this is like a spot that just prints money. I'm not sure that we should be able to rep a queen, but I think we can. And yeah, let's right. go for it. I assume you didn't fold. I didn't fold. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would be, it would have it would have been like a pretty crazy hand sad to bring on the podcast. If I just yeah, folded like, yeah, I look behind all the all the flop, check back the turn, and then I folded the river. <laughs> I mean, I didn't say it was going to be a hand I played well. To be fair, but no, I think no. <laughs> I mean, other than preflop, I think everything you did is like for sure totally justifiable. And like, I, I also think that like in the podcast format, we should expect like a slightly higher degree of accuracy from our decision makings than in game. You know, we have the luxury of time to sort of mull things over. You yeah. kind of have to make a decision. I was actually, yeah. cu- so I guess quickly let's get to the results. And then I have a question about the turn and how it relates to your background. Sure. So I ended up raising, so, so the bet was 3,200. I made it 7,200 and uh, he did end up folding. Interestingly enough, though, he did not insta-fold, which surprised me because the whole reason that I went so small was pretty much that I thought he was pretty polarized here to a queen or like a misdraw, which he should have a bajillion of. And he tanked for probably like two minutes. And um, like we even like he he talked to me (laughs) to try to figure out what was going on. So I was pretty surprised about that. But we did get the fold at least. Yeah, he could have had an ace. I mean, seen crazier things. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if he had a hand like six x of the back door, decided to bluff to get an ace to fold, which is a pretty misguided play, <laughs> in my opinion. And then when you raise, maybe he thinks that maybe he has, he has the best hand, and decides to pitch it ultimately. Or perhaps flirting with calling with King High. Yeah, that that's certainly possible. I didn't really consider it in game just because I think most recreational players in that spot are they know they're one and dunning it. They're not gonna bet big and then get raised small and then be like, hmm, King High might be good here. But I, I suppose it's <laughs> as you said, like we've all seen crazier things, so we'll never know what he had, but uh it's uh, pretty hard for him to have had worse, so I was pretty happy with the result. <laughs> yeah, what's interesting is that I think this probably means that Under the Gun 1 did not have an ace. I would be surprised if... an a- Did he snap fold? So, <laughs> he he folded quicker than I expected, so I, I didn't... Certainly after that, I didn't think that he folded an ace, but again, it's kind of hard to get perfect judgment on these things just because the sizing was it kind of changed so drastically from the flop to the river. And I could certainly see this being under the gun one, uh, being the kind of player who sees that he bets 700 on the flop and then it checks through turn. And then suddenly the river bet is three K and he's not really thinking about the size of the pot in the same way that we are. 
but I still feel like he at least sighs and rechecks his card with cards with an ace, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because I think the player who checks an ace there is generally doing so to pick off bluffs or because he doesn't want to face a raise but is expecting to call a bet. And so, yeah, with the timing of the fold on the river, I agree that it's pretty unlikely that he had an ace, which is interesting because it's hard to know. <laughs> you just, it just, you wonder what these players bet. Right. Um, it's like, what does he have? <laughs> but it goes to show that it can just be like something <laughs> that's not an ace, whatever that might be. Yeah. I think, not a queen either. I think it's pretty likely that that player just has, you know, King Jack, King 10 himself that he's stabbing the flop with and then yeah. just gives up. Um, which, right. And it's entirely possible for him to have that and for the big blind to also have like a very similar hand or a diamond draw. So it's kind of one of those things where because the big blinds, you know, gets to just check uh, behind pre flop, like the fact that under the gun plus one doesn't have an ace doesn't really make us more concerned about the big blinds hand on the river, I don't think. Right. So I wanted to ask you, you know, in regards to the turn, I know you've been working really closely uh, with Beyond Tells. Maybe it would be worthwhile having you talk about what that project is, what you do for them before I continue with this line of questioning. (laughs) Okay, sure. Yeah, so Beyond Tells is a behavioral study of poker players uh, that we ran where uh, we had a bunch of players come in and actually play real games for real money and they were recorded. And uh, we did a whole bunch of analysis on the videos uh, looking for, you know, various kinds of correlations between hand strength and, you know, physical behaviors um, because we have like we recorded with an RFID table. We have all of the whole card information but beyond like looking for those larger player pool tendencies, kind of the bigger purpose of Beyond Tells is to teach a, an approach to observing, uh, analyzing, and kind of making sense of behavior at the poker table as it pertains to individuals. So kind of the ability to watch a player over a period of time and kind of piece together some sort of information that you kind of wouldn't otherwise have about how they play their hands, uh, about what hands they have in, in certain moments with certain behavioral information. So beyond tells, you know, we ran the study and, uh, it's a course now as well, which is, uh, almost done being produced. Um, and it's, and it's open. So, uh, yeah, thanks for the plug beyond tells.com. <laughs> well, I've, I saw a little bit of it. One of the guys who is staying with us is a subscriber. And so I got to see some of the footage. It's kind of hilarious for me because I just know like half the people in the game. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I'm based in New York City. And so I play with some of these guys, guys and girls. Uh, you guys had a nice gender diverse mix. And I've actually coached some of the people in the game. It's just. Okay. And plus you're dealing. And so I, was, I just felt like I was at a home game or something. <laughs> yeah. So the reason I bring it up is I'm sort of assuming based on your involvement with Beyond Tells that 
you are utilizing physical tells in your poker decision making, and you you were throughout the this year's World Series. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it's interesting because when I think about like my background as a player, I actually I did start online for couple years pretty much and I was always pretty much on like the more technical side of things I had a pretty common trajectory in terms of like things I studied and you know how I learned the game as far as like my age group is concerned uh so like you know mid-20s I feel like most people kind of came up on you know books and then a lot of training sites and stuff like that so it's definitely new to me uh and it's a skill set that I don't feel I have total mastery over. Uh, I mean, not that anyone does, but for me, it's it's still very new to my game. So what I find is that because it's pretty mentally taxing to uh, use such a high degree of like observational uh, attention to actually put together useful information and actually uh, use it in a practical way, I don't end up doing it all the time at the table. And a lot of times what I'm doing is a little bit more passive. So the parts of the skill set that are easier to me uh, are kind of on all the time, if you want to kind of think about it that way. And then the things that require higher attention, even in the main, I'm not necessarily doing that all the time because I'll just burn out in the first like hour and a half. And uh, that's not really acceptable in the main. So so with cash games, I was starting to use it more. And in the tournaments, I kind of wasn't as much and just kind of, you know, I pick up things here and there, but that's more experiential and more, I guess, what you would talk about as a like traditionally feel-based approach to physical tells rather than a systematic one for the tournaments anyway. That makes sense. And I think you're not going sort of full force like you know paying as much attention to every action at the table including like people look first looking at their whole cards throughout the entire main event is very wise it's energy is a limited resource and these are 12 hour days of poker and you're just not going to be able to pay attention to every little detail let alone pay attention to every hand in my opinion and so i think being conscious about how you're using your energy and having a plan of like, okay, when I have a new player at my table or like the first, you know, the first half hour of play, I think it's obviously important to be hyper vigilant. And every subsequent half hour with the same group of people, it's less important, I think, to be watching everyone's reactions and maybe more important to be paying attention to general game flow. Yeah. And I, I don't want to undersell <laughs> what I was doing. It's not like I'm not paying attention at all. Um, but kind of like you said, there's there's a period of time, especially at the beginning of the tournament, where I'm trying to figure out if there's anybody that I am going to watch really closely. And I'm not necessarily targeting an entire table of people because that is probably the least practical thing you could actually do with your attention. I mean, it's the same way, you know, even if I was not talking about behavior, if we removed that kind of concept here, it would apply the same where there's players that I'm actively going to be going after and there are players that i'm not as much and the players in these hands even though they were not the strongest opponents uh, weren't necessarily the ones that i was paying the most attention to from a behavioral standpoint but there were certainly people and moments in in the main event and in other tournaments where 
that was definitely what I was basing decisions on. But a lot of times that was more focused on pre-flop. And a lot of times it was actually when shorter stacked, when I felt like close decisions could be shifted one way or the other um, based on something I saw. Right. Well, I mean, and that all makes sense. And I think it's uh, something that everyone listening to this should take to heart. The reason I brought it up in the first place, you know, beyond wanting to give you an opportunity to plug this awesome product that you've been working on for the last, I, I'm not even sure how long, but <laughs> the reason I bring it up is on the turn, when, if we assume that it's like very close in EV between, or at least like given the trade-off and variance between betting and checking, I would think to a player who is more attuned to incorporating timing tells and other live tells, betting would give you more of an advantage and would give you clarity on river decisions that would, you know, increase the EV of your turn bet. And so I, I, I wonder, I wonder generally if like that's something that you consider. It's definitely something that I consider, even though I haven't done as intensive of a study of tells as you know what can be found in Beyond Tells. But I'm curious if that's something that enters your decision making. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's. I mean, you stated it very well. Um, it's something that we would kind of call like an interaction in the sense that you're not necessarily doing something purely for that information, but as a byproduct of the interaction, you may get some information. And so, yeah, it can absolutely tip certain things certain ways. Again, like I'm not necessarily thinking at that high of a level every time I sit down, but I think that's a really good way to think about it in the sense that if that decision was close, I mean, I probably should have bet anyway, but if it was very close, but I'm pretty likely to pick up some information that will help me uh, on the river, uh, regardless of you know what they have, then that would definitely potentially push me toward betting um, and might also influence how I choose to size because you know different hands in their range will you know they'll feel different ways about it depending on how big I bet. Like if I bet small, it's probably not that worthwhile um, because it's just not going to create that moment of either confusion or of uh, discomfort. Um, so kind of like how we talked about starting to bomb early is definitely very valuable here just because of not only that it makes some of their hands likely to fold, but it also is likely to bring some of that, some of that discomfort. Yeah. I mean, I think on the turn, if we bet, it just makes a lot more sense to bet large since that's what our value is incentivized to do. And I think it gives us better options on the river, but just to point out some of the things that just for our listeners that I would be looking for and what adjustments I might make. And I'd I'd be curious to hear if you agree with this assessment. From the big blind, I think I've been paying more attention to timing tells. I think if we got a very quick call, then I would be likely to choose a much smaller sizing on like a bricky river, thinking that most of the hands that are calling or have a very clear quick call are not going to fold on that brick river or were a draw themselves and are very likely to fold, given that I don't think bluff raising is very likely for mark players in general, and especially on day one of the main event. And then from the under the gun one player, I'd be looking for sort of defensive tells. I think a lot of rec players do things to try and like, and this is assuming that they're sort of on the weaker end of 
recreational players. But I don't think these are these tells are used deceptively from the higher end of recreational players. I think they're just basically only present on the weaker end. And so if this player falls into that weaker end, then this might be useful. But someone doing something like like giving you a hard stare and then calling, or like putting in chips in sort of an aggressive manner, that indicates like a degree of scaredness that I think is exploitable through a large bet on the river. I think someone who's more comfortable check calling here clearly has a better understanding of the fact that like there are a lot of draws here and turning your ace into a bluff catcher and just holding on is a very good way to play many aces. I think that player is less likely to make this sort of defensive tell facing a bet. Yeah. I don't necessarily disagree with anything that you, you've said, but that sort of, I guess, line of thinking definitely falls much more into kind of what I would call my sort of passive state of paying attention to behavior in the sense that I will just sort of notice a lot of those things experientially and try to interpret them based on my knowledge of the player. Whereas anything beyond that is like a little bit more complex and I would need to have been kind of already watching the players for, for more information and to try to interpret Uh, A lot of what I would be looking for, if I had been watching them already, some of it would come down to timing, but a lot of it would also come down to whether they start regulating their behavior or not, and when. Basically, at this point in the hand, like nobody's made any gigantic bets. It's It's a limited pop pre. There's really no reason for anyone to be regulating heavily their behavior because they just, they kind of feel comfortable. It's not really a big pot. And presumably nobody really has a big hand because there's there's no indication that anybody does yet. So if I then make a pretty big bet and you know they start regulating, or perhaps if the if they call and the river card comes and now they're regulating, I mean there's like a lot of it, it's it's hard to state simply. Let's put it that way because because it would all be in the context of what I'd seen them do before. Um, but a lot of it would come down to whether they're trying to conceal their kind of their emotions and their physiological arousal at the table and uh, kind of the timing of when that happens and whether it's in response to uh, various actions at the table or not. But like I said, I wasn't really watching them for that. So I can't really speak super intelligently about like what I would or would not have interpreted based on what those exact players would do in that spot. And so I guess you guys see that or you guys see that these sort of behavior regulation sort of things and what else you're looking for is fairly specific to each player such that you would have to be watching them prior to be able to pick up on something it's not something that's common amongst you know large swaths of humanity or people yeah. who have a certain level of experience yeah so so just as like a quick example one one pretty common like concealment strategy that that we would see would be somebody who when they're bluffing they try to sort of act like nothing's wrong try to appear comfortable and loose but they might have some tension Uh, whereas when they have the nuts they kind of get more still and actually have a higher level of apparent regulation of their behavior and i i say that it's common but it's not across the board not everybody does this but if I knew from watching that that was true for this player, then I know it. 
And it's something that is pretty reliable in terms of like, because people have these sort of learned patterns of how they approach certain spots and certain hand types and uh, kind of what they're comfortable with and not. And some people will just have different approaches. And yeah, there are commonalities, um, but certainly the most valuable thing out of Beyond Tells is the ability to navigate the differences, not learning the commonalities, I would say. Right. And I think that's really cool because learning the commonalities is a much simpler thing. And it's something that for the more attentive among us becomes somewhat second nature. Like the stuff I was laying out, I don't think is particularly advanced per se. It's not the kind of thing that I would hope would be illuminated in a course called Beyond Tells. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so, yeah, that's really cool. It's interesting to me, like, I feel like so much of so much of the school of poker tells focuses on this like sort of terrifying moment of like facing a big bet in a bluff catching situation, mm-hmm. which is just sort of like, I mean, in theory, it's kind of the nightmare situation. And in practice, it's like for sure the nightmare situation. And at the low stakes, it's like even more the nightmare situation. Cause they almost always have it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just, it's interesting that the prototypical example is always sort of like, okay, well, someone made a big bet it's like are they bluffing or not like how do we know and i think and i'm sure you guys talk about this extensively i i'm curious to learn more about like i'm so often the aggressor and because people are so value heavy with their aggression their aggression frequency is very low and so for me like i think if i were to improve or the thing that would be most beneficial to like my bottom line would be better interpreting like the actions of players who are in the sort of passive side of the game tree. Yeah. And actually that, I mean, that style kind of jives really well with beyond tells because even though, even though information is sort of a byproduct of the actions we take, it is pretty much always true that aggressive actions give us more information. And a lot of times, you know, making aggressive actions earlier on in hands allow us behaviorally, as long as we're watching, to figure things out later. And a lot of times when they when they are, you know, marginal, it doesn't mean that they're like super weak and you can just call down or or you know just check down. It, it means they're marginal and they kind of have something, but you want to go after them. And so kind of combining those things together is definitely powerful. I think people expect to find more information when people are aggressive. Cause like you said, they expect like, Oh, they made this huge bet. They're, you know, they're either bluffing or they have it. So they're going to have this physiological arousal, but a lot of tells don't necessarily come from physiological arousal. You know, they come from, from patterns and, you know, how we learned how to play and, you know, how we think about certain hands pre-flop and, and after the flop. And it's not as simple as, uh, oh, you know, he's super strong or super weak. There's a lot of middle ground where that aggression can either just get you to fold or kind of help clarify. Yeah. Well, that's exciting stuff. I will post a link in the show notes to the Beyond Tells website, and you guys can all find out more there. I want to ask you some really standard cookie-cutter questions about being a vlogger (laughs) because I just don't talk to that many vloggers, and... So I have curiosities about these sorts of things. 
but I, I assume I'm not the first person to ask you th- this question, but I guess that means you probably have a well-polished and thoughtful answer. Why did you start a vlog about being a poker player? And quickly, <laughs> when you started the vlog, were you playing professionally and are you playing professionally now? Or how do you answer that question? Sure. Well, I definitely have been asked that more than once, but I wouldn't say this is going to be a well-polished answer because it wasn't really a well-polished reason that I started the vlog. So to give a little bit of background from from before that, from about like the middle of 2014 to just pretty much the beginning of 2017, I was working in a healthcare software, kind of like an IT sort of position uh, where I was basically kind of a consultant to uh, software and IT people that work for hospitals. And I was kind of, you know, thinking about leaving the job and wasn't sure exactly what I was going to be doing next, uh, kind of toyed with the idea of playing full time or close to full time. And then I got the opportunity to uh, start working with Beyond Tells. And uh, that was sort of when I made the decision to leave. And that was kind of what I transitioned into. And kind of while this was happening, I you know, had seen a couple of poker vlogs and they were interesting to me. I, I liked watching them, but I also felt like uh, I, I could do that. And I also thought that this was kind of a period in my life that would be kind of cool to document, uh, not only from a viewing perspective, but also just for myself, uh, selfishly, I guess. So I think it was probably like two or three months before I actually left my job and transitioned, but I'd already made the decision. So I kind of knew uh, what was coming up. Uh, I made the decision to kind of put out the first vlog and just sort of see what happened with it. And me being a poker player was just the biggest part of my life that I felt wasn't super, super duper boring. (laughs) Uh, So I I never really thought about, uh, you know, theming it any other way. Poker was already a pretty big part of my life at that point. And seemed pretty logical at the time. So that's that's when I got started. And I uh, kind of documented my life first as a, a purely amateur player, and then uh, moving and kind of transitioning into playing more and being involved in poker more. And yeah, so yeah, not well polished, but sort of a mini master plan, I guess. And then as far as you know, how many hours I play and do I consider it a profession and things like that. It's, it's definitely somewhere in the middle, I would say. I think it's kind of a step beyond sort of a part-time thing for me because my, my whole job is fairly inundated with poker. Even if I'm not necessarily like talking hands day in and day out, I am working on poker-related products. And then I'm playing pretty frequently too, although right now with Beyond Tells, uh, I haven't been playing that many hours outside of the WSOP so, I mean, prior to starting to work on Beyond Tells, I would say I was purely a part-time player, but a, a serious one. And now I would say I'm whatever one tier below a professional player is. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I'm curious, um, so you, you said you were inspired by poker vlogs. Are there, were there any other vlogs that you were watching that influenced how you're approaching this? Or was it purely sort of, you know from poker to poker? Well, I mean, the, the main two that were starting to really gain traction at the time, I'm not sure if there were other smaller ones that had begun before mine, but 
I just didn't know about. Um, but it was Andrew Nemi and Brad Owen, which is not super surprising to anybody who is kind of aware of the poker vlogging scene these days. Uh, they're the two biggest, and they have been for quite a while. I felt like they weren't necessarily putting in as much kind of hand analysis, and that was sort of where I thought I could possibly bring something a little bit new or a little bit different and sort of just my thought process. So that was kind of how I started, I guess, theming my videos or trying to get my videos to stand out. But yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't so big at the time when I started it. I've actually had it for over a year and a half now. So I'm curious, like playing a full schedule of the series as a vlogger, I don't get recognized very much at all. I did get voice recognized once during the Colossus, which was weird. But I also don't, I'm not putting my face out in the world. So I'm curious, like, how often you're getting recognized and how you think, like, the sort of energies of being a vlogger, engaging with your audience, producing vlogs, how that interacts with uh, trying to be 100% in on you know, playing your best in a fairly full schedule during the World Series? Wow, that's a pretty packed question. Um, so so first of all, I, I get recognized at my home casinos pretty much every time I go play. And it's, you know, I, there's a mix of, obviously, there's people who I've met now several times and people who I, I haven't met yet who just kind of introduce themselves. When I travel, it's definitely much less uh, just because, I'm pretty established now as being like an East coast vlogger. So I'm way more likely to get recognized in any of the Maryland casinos or in, in say like Atlantic city or Foxwoods even. But yeah, I mean, once in a while I run into somebody in Vegas, my, my largest fame moment was getting recognized in the Orleans, but not near the poker room <laughs> because as a poker vlogger, you don't really uh, get recognized just in random spots in the city. There's <laughs> just not enough, uh, uh, not enough people even in Vegas who are who are playing poker and watching vlogs to really have that level of recognition. Uh, so so that was pretty cool to have that. But as far as you know how being a vlogger jives with trying to play a large schedule and trying to kind of be focused on the playing, it's a mix for sure. Like there's positives and negatives, I think. The positives are that, Vlogging in general and like the editing process is something that's poker away from poker. So it's it's something that lets me kind of, I mean, I'm talking about hands away from the table. So I kind of get to sort of brain dump from some of that and decompress a little bit from some of the kind of tougher, you know, ups and ups and downs. Well, I guess the ups aren't tough, but kind of handle some of those situations more easily and it's just time away from the table where I think, especially in Vegas, in a place that's not home, you need to be really kind of cognizant of how you're decompressing and making sure that you are decompressing in some form or another. And um, I think it's a pretty healthy way for me because <laughs> I don't, there's not a lot of other stuff that I want to like go out and do. Um, personally, I'm, I'm actually like a pretty strong introvert. So I'm not like going out to bars with friends to decompress. I'm I'm kind of just like sitting at home. Uh, so it's nice to have something that's kind of inherently productive that goes along with that. That being said, the uh, the time constraints involved in producing the vlog and the, I guess, the mental constraints as well 
definitely started to be kind of tough, especially this year where I kind of played more tournaments that I have in past years. Uh, it was sort of the days when I had completely off uh, from tournaments and like I knew I wasn't going to play for a couple days. Those were pretty easy to sort of get in the zone and, and try to pump out some some work on the blog. But days when it's like I wanted to still be in a tournament and maybe I have a tournament the next day, but I have like six or seven hours today that I could work on it. Those were pretty hard to get motivated to uh, work on the vlog just because you, you've kind of exhausted your mental resources in a tournament. And over the course of the summer, I definitely started to burn out a little bit from uh, just everything I was doing kind of uh, piling up. Right. And that the World Series is a particularly strange time for that kind of thing, because I think at most other tournament series, your options are limited, you know, and there's a more clear, like, sort of window of when you're going to be playing and when you're done. And at the series, you can, there's just always something to play. And obviously, like, there's always cash, but at the series, there's always, like, a really, like, good value tournament to play somewhere in the strip, like, tomorrow, if right. at the very latest. And I, I did experience some of that for sure because I, I went in, I did sell a package and I had planned tournaments, but I ended up changing my schedule around kind of a decent amount. And I ended up adding a lot of the kind of smaller buy-in tournaments and some of the non-Rio events in exchange for some of my larger Rio events because I just felt like they were better value for my skill set right now. And so it ended up, I ended up firing like way more bullets than I'd initially planned, uh, which is part of why I ended up kind of with so so little additional time to edit. And as as any of my subscribers probably know, I didn't put out that many actual videos during the summer. I'm still a little bit backlogged. Even I have content I want to put out, so it was it was definitely hard to like see amazing tournaments on the schedule, like you said, for the next day or maybe the day following and and not go play them and mostly i did just go play them so for sure my time was you know if i had planned it to maybe be like 70 percent play and 30 percent vlog it was much closer to like 90 percent play and 10 percent vlog yeah i also went on like a three-week podcast hiatus which was the longest break in since i started uh, i don't think we've missed more than a week and only missed one or two weeks part of that is obviously Losing my co-host made it a little bit more challenging to pump out episodes. But yeah, I mean, a big part of it was just like being locked into the tournament grind and just not wanting to devote mental resources to anything else. I remember when I first got to the series, uh, this is this was my first series. So yeah, and day one of the series, and this isn't even like, this wasn't that much money, but it just was still a strange experience. Like, you know, I fired two Colossus bullets and I, that's done by like 1 p.m. And I'm like with uh, Jordan from Software Y. And he's like, well, come to, the, come to our office and play the online 365. And like that wasn't on my schedule. But I was like, okay, cool. That deposited money on like WCP.com. Go break that. Break some like side tournaments. We get home. And I'm like, damn, I just broke like four tournaments. <laughs> In like and a few hours, and I right? could definitely do that tomorrow, and right. like every day for the next like six weeks. Well, I mean, I can't do that every day for the next six <laughs> weeks. So, the next day, mercifully, I 
survived in the closets past the rebuy period. Not to a cash or anything like that, but long enough to only fire three bullets in that one and then decide to shift over to the $1,100 uh, MSPT thing that was happening over at Venetian. But yeah, it was it just like a it was a wake up call. Like, damn, there's a lot of gambling to, that can be can be done uh, <laughs> during this six weeks or so. So, it, yeah, I mean, and to be clear, it's not. I don't want to make it sound like woe is me. I had to play so much. I mean, these were all my decisions, and I I did feel good about them. And there's a certain kind of mentality that you can pick up when you're just kind of on a roll and firing at these things and you have the opportunity to fire the next day and the next day. And yeah, some of it can kind of start to weigh on you, but there's a lot of value in it too, in the sense that there's really no other time of the year, at least for me personally, with the travel that I'm able to do, you know, maybe there's series I don't really know about or that I wouldn't travel to, but where I can just play upwards of 20 events in this time period, it just doesn't really exist for me. So the ability to do it uh, and not have my next tournament be a month later, instead have it be the next day, it actually really helps me get in the zone, get excited, and just kind of be in the right mentality for for playing and often just bricking because I know there's going to be another opportunity. So uh, at least for me, like that was largely a benefit, even though it did detract from the vlog uh, to a degree. And I think that I'll be better prepared for it next year in terms of like, actually scheduling in, in days when I seriously will not play. I promise I will not play. <laughs> but uh, but it was definitely a great experience this year to just be able to keep rolling day after day and really only take those breaks when I absolutely needed them. Yeah, I'm envious of that. because So I was there for most of the series. I was out of town for like a week in the middle. I missed the marathon, which is apparently fucking awesome. But oh well. But the point is... You know, I was there for most of the series, and I had sold action prior, you know, for events ranging from the Colossus to the Closer. I ended up actually not playing the Closer and instead played a $1,600 wind event. But basically, I had to ration throughout the series. I, I was rolled for the schedule I ended up playing, but I wasn't rolled to be playing tournaments at the frequency I would have liked being out there that long. And I think it's actually, uh, I think I coped with it fairly well, but I do think it's a big advantage of the professional and of like the very well-rolled professional to be able to just put in you know max volume in terms of you know for within what one can do wisely and also enjoyably and i definitely felt more so on the end of like i wish i could be firing more and you know firing more bullets at certain events and not having a fair number of days where just because I was going to be in town for so long firing tournaments, you know, if I busted, I break early for a day, it's like I had to just kind of be done for the day. And that was, I think, the hardest part of the series for me was just being prepared to, like, put in huge volume for the next several days and then, like, breaking early and having to kind of just wait until the next tournament on my schedule. Right, right, for sure. Yeah, on, on that note, I've actually... Apparently, since leaving Vegas, I haven't had my fill of tournaments yet because I've actually been kind of putting in a semi-legitimate, we'll call it, grind uh, online in MTTs pretty much exclusively, um, which is unusual for me. I, I haven't played online really at all in the last several years. And so 
it feels pretty good to be able to just, you know, open something up, be able to fire multiple things. And as you say, not really worry at all about results or worry about breaking everything because, I mean, I'm stupid overruled for $30 tournaments. <laughs> uh, so, so it's nice to kind of have that to sort of curb my MTT desires right now, I guess. But certainly people who are overruled have a huge advantage. I agree with that 100%. And when it comes to MTTs, there's almost like no role is overruled. So it's kind of just like perpetual degrees of being slightly more rolled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I do have one question that I've been looking for someone to ask this question to. And I think you're a good person. Basically, well, first, let me ask you, do you play much cash? Yes, I, I do. Uh, it, it's funny because when I come on something like this and I talk about in a tournament hand and then we talk about WSOP, it probably sounds like I'm like primarily a tournament player, which I'm, I'm actually not. That's I, what I, I thought. Yeah, yeah I, I, do, I do play cash. And especially up until the last year and a half or so, I, was, I would call myself like a, a solely a cash player. Like I, I dabbled in MTTs, but I didn't play a lot of them. It's only really in the last couple of years that I've been really upping my volume and uh, consider myself to be a little bit more competent than I was uh, at the beginning. Right. And that, that was what I thought, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> I think in some ways it can be insulting if you're a cash player to be labeled a tournament player. And so I definitely, that's not how I was profiling you. I just want, wanted <laughs> sure. to ask to make sure as a prequel to this question, which is the real question. Um, so I noticed like, I was just watching one of your vlogs where you're playing a $360 Maryland live event. And you made a nice run. I enjoyed the sweat. It made for really good content. I'm curious, though, like, what's your rationale for playing these smaller buy-in events? And when you're playing, like, a $30 online tournament, what's, uh, like, what's your motivation for doing so when you have access to, like, you know, these cash skills that seem like they could be better monetized in the duration of time like you're playing this tournament? Sure. I mean, your your question drives at a deeper one, which is like, why play tournaments at all, pretty much, but I think is especially well placed in the smaller buy-ins. And I actually, when I was toying with kind of what directions I wanted my YouTube channel to go in, I made a video that was, I think it's basically called like, why you shouldn't play live tournaments or something like that. And it's largely aimed at smaller buy-ins. So like the you know, particularly like casino daily events and things like that, where the rake's high and the structure is bad and all these other factors. And it's particularly like for people trying to play for profit, obviously, because if you're not playing for profit, you're just playing for fun. All of this is sort of off the table as long as you can kind of afford your hobby. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of facets to it for me. First of all, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made for from purely a financial perspective, like I shouldn't play tournaments that my hourly in the events that I can afford to play is lower most of the time than in cash games. Although I do kind of think that tournaments, even up to like the 1k, 2k level are substantially softer than cash games, but that's kind of a whole nother discussion. So I don't want to get too far into that. 
When it comes to the smaller ones, um, that particular event that you saw in the video, I was playing, which was like a few days before a 1500 that was like the main for that series. So a part of it was just kind of getting back in the groove of it. I think at the time I hadn't played a live tournament in probably a couple of months. Um, so that was part of the motivation. But part of it is also just that I probably love tournaments a little bit more than I should. Uh, there, there's an element of the competition and an element of kind of there being winners and losers and, and, and things that really, I guess, appeals to my competitive nature. And the feeling of like going on a deep run is still kind of, it, it, it's not quite like I'm a newer player. It's not to that degree where like you get super excited about, you know, any win or anything like that. But there's there's a degree of excitement that comes from being on deep runs in tournaments that doesn't really exist for me in pretty much any arena in cash. Like there, there's very few ways that a cash session can go down where I'm like super, super excited at the end. So I, I think there's certainly some degree of like chasing that even in these smaller tournaments. And that combined with the fact that like even winning one of these smaller events has a pretty big positive ROI on like my life over the next couple years and beyond potentially. That's an element too, um, although less so in the something like a $360 one. When it comes to online tournaments, I, I'm really doing it much more so for putting in repetitions than I am for like an hourly. I, I certainly don't have any big headedness about having like some gigantic ROI and like a $30 online tournament to the point where it's worth playing it for hours and hours. It mostly comes down to getting some practice in, trying to kind of illuminate my leaks a little bit faster because I don't play enough tournaments per year live to really get so many situations to then analyze and, and feel like I'm really touching on everything that I can improve on. Whereas online in like the weaker two weeks or whatever that it's been since I've been home. And I think I've probably played maybe 50 tournaments online, something like that. I already feel like I am picking apart some of these small but persistent leaks that that affect me, I think both online and live. So when it comes to online, it's mostly just like practice makes perfect sort of stuff and, uh, and some level of enjoyment. Like I don't hate it either, so that's good. And then live... I mean, I probably shouldn't be playing three hundred dollar tournaments. Let's just let's just say that. <laughs> so I, you know, let me let me reveal that I also play like small buy and online events for practice, and so I share that mindset with you hundred percent. I did. I was doing it definitely more so before the series. I haven't played any since the series. I'm going to be playing, not necessarily as much for practice, more so for profit. Some of the Sunday events and like an upcoming ACR series. But yeah, I, I totally agree that practice makes perfect with tournaments, especially I think the online format, the faster structures when, when they are faster, give you good short stack practice, encountering different scenarios, giving you an op opportunity to sort of internalize certain things and get hand histories to look at where, you know, resources like snapshot fall short. That's all extremely useful. And yeah, your your larger point about like are tournaments worth playing generally? I think you could very compellingly make a case that in this in the sort of world where you're trying to, you know, maximize your EV and lower variance, 
you just shouldn't play tournaments for sure. And generally my approach has been that I actually play tournaments to add variance to my yearly income. Since, right. you know, making, like if we, without getting too much into my financials, if we said that, you know, grinding cash at the volumes I grind could yield me on average $80,000 a year in income. And then if I play $50,000 in buy-ins in tournaments, now my income is going to range from like 40000 to several million at the high end. Is that a trade-off I'm willing to take? And my answer has been, or at least since the last year when I've considered this decision, has been yes, since there's just not a huge difference in... Like, my cost of living, even though I live in New York City, is fairly low. And the things I enjoy are can be facilitated on that lower level of income. And the higher levels just unlock doors to me that there's really no other way for me to unlock currently. And given that I feel like all these tournaments are individually plus EV decisions, uh, I think it justifies the increased variance for me. Yeah, and that's that's a topic that I struggle to communicate sometimes to people, but it also largely captures how I feel about my current life situation as well. Again, not going into deep financials, but the difference in my life had I bricked every tournament that I played at the WSOP this year would be basically none. I'd be pissed off, but I wouldn't have a particularly lower quality of life. I might eat out less, you know, a couple a couple months after, but but that would probably be it. And, uh, you know, the, the possibilities that come from potentially winning uh, a, a large tournament are very big and would change my life substantially for the better. Um, so that's kind of what I mean when I talk about, like, the potential positive ROI on, like, the upside of it. And, but I really like how you described deliberately adding variance to, to, <laughs> to your income for that reason. But, yeah, I'm kind of with you there where I do believe that each tournament is a plus EV decision, even if it's not quite as plus EV as my time spent on cash. And I could sometimes just, you know, brick for almost a year or whatever, you know, there, there's an upside there. And yeah, I haven't won a tournament in a while, but I'm uh, also pretty confident that I'll, I'll do it eventually. Me too. I am very confident that you and I will both have some victories under our belt in the next couple of years. Um, feel good about that bet. And I think clearly there are also some exceptions. Like I think playing the main event is just clearly like the highest EV thing you can do those days of the year. Certain structures yeah. <laughs> and or, tournaments just have a way of tricking people into playing for huge stakes that they are totally uncomfortable with. Uh, it's really genius. Even like in a $1,500 event, like once you're playing, once you're in like the third level or fourth level, it's like, you know, you're playing 10, 20 probably with, you know, some players who would feel uncomfortable playing or buying in for a thousand dollars in a two five game right uh, and so there's yeah. something to be said for that <laughs> yeah if you if you want to talk about um you know stack equity uh, and how that changes over the course of a big tournament i have to put this small brag in here i guess uh so i, I did run deep in the monster stack this year and uh on day four we were down to like you know 90 some people out of a field of six thousand, and i've I just kind of did some quick mental math to figure out that the straight up chop equity, if it was just chopped even 90 ways, 
was like eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, that's and, pretty crazy. And that was kind of mind blowing because at that point, I think the cash was still only worth like I don't know seven or eight grand, something like that. So it was kind of crazy to think about what was possible up above and uh, what the stakes we actually were playing for uh, were. Because at that point, I mean, yeah, people are taking it more seriously, but it was still reasonably casual with 100 people left. Like, you don't feel like you're at a final table yet at all. But but yeah, the, the way that the stakes kind of increase, kind of without you noticing, like the actual physical monetary stakes, not the, uh, not the blinds, it's deceptive. And uh, yeah, I, I like the way you phrased it with uh, tricking people into playing for higher stakes than they actually would <laughs> if they realize. It's a strange world. Well, Matt, I've taken over an hour and a half of your time, and I'm very, very appreciative of you, of you coming on and sharing the hand, sharing your experiences as a vlogger, as a poker player generally. So I know people know that they can find you at Beyond Tells and at the vlog. Is there anywhere else that you would point people to? to keep track of what you're doing um no that that's pretty much it the vlog beyondtells.com and uh actually schoolofcards.com which i also uh do work for uh is another good place to uh see what we're up to fantastic i, I hope you're getting some some equity you know some some piece of the subs you know, for all this <laughs> uh yeah well the, the biggest audience of anyone in the beyond tells network i would assume yeah, well, the School of Cards channel has like 20,000 subs, but it's been semi-inactive for a couple years. We'll be ramping it back up shortly, though. But yeah, I do I do actually get a kickback if, if people kind of are brought to any of our courses through me. So if you want to uh, go check it out and kind of mention I brought you, uh, that's appreciated. But, uh, but yeah, you can find me those places, and the vlog will be picking up again soon, I hope. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Well, I'm excited to tune in, you know, give our man Matt some money and thank you again for coming on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. I appreciate it. My pleasure.